Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella, episode 25, A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen. I've changed. Yes, Torvald, I've changed. Why, it's so late? It's not that late. Nora, my dear. Sit down, Torvald. What? Sit down. You and I have a lot to talk about. I don't understand. No, that's just it. You don't understand me. And I never understood you until this evening. No, You're not to interrupt me. Just listen to what I have to say. This is a reckoning, Torvald. What do you mean? Doesn't anything strike you about the way we're sitting here now? No? What? We've been married eight years. Don't you think it's significant that this is the first time that you and I, as husband and wife, have ever sat down to have a serious talk? What do you mean, serious? Eight whole years. No longer than that, from the time we first knew each other, we've never exchanged one serious word on a serious subject. But do you think I should have continually bothered you with all sorts of problems which you couldn't possibly have me? I'm not talking about your problems. I'm saying that we have never sat down and talked and tried to get to the bottom of anything together. My dear Noro, what good do you think it would have done you if we did? Well, that's just it. You never understood me. I've been treated most unjustly, Torvald, first by father and then by you. What do you mean, both of us have loved you more than anyone else in the world? You never loved me. You just enjoyed being in love with me. Now, well, what is all this? Oh, it's true, Torvald. When I lived at home with father, he fed me all his opinions until in the end I held the same opinions. If I didn't, I kept quiet about it because I knew he wouldn't have liked it. He used to call me his doll child, and he played with me just as I played with my doll. When I moved into your house... Well, that's no way to describe our marriage. All right. When Father handed me over to you, <laughs> you arranged everything according to your taste. And I adapted the same taste. Perhaps I just pretended to. I really don't know. Probably a mixture of both. Sometimes one, sometimes the other. Looking back on it, I feel as if I have been living a beggar's life from hand to mouth. I made my living doing tricks for you, Torvald, and that's what you wanted. You and Father have done me great wrong. It's a still life watercolor 
of a now late afternoon As the sun shines through the curtain lace And shadows wash the room And we sit and drink our coffee Couched in our indifference Like shells upon the shore You can hear the ocean roar In the dangling conversation And the superficial sighs The borders of our lives Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we will be taking a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read and determined whether it is worthy of its reputation or its place in the canon. As always, I'm Tom Paneris, and with me is my charming co-host, the... Nora to my Torvald? I don't know if that works. I'm probably through Krogstad at this point in our relationship here. (laughs) Stella. Oh, man. Yeah, that's, uh, it doesn't bode well with, uh, (laughs) especially given what transpires at the end of the novel. But yes, here I Mm. am. Yes. So how are you? I'm well, you know. I know that you'll appreciate this story that I have to tell you. I thought I would tell it on air because we're both fans of She's yes. the Man. I think it's a very That's fun a film. I, I also think it's a funny film. And a couple of days ago, I guess it was Monday, I was waking up and just like blood started coming out of my nose. And so I had to run. Unfortunately, got on like my sheets and stuff. And I was like running out of my bedroom into the and it was a pretty big bloody nose. It just it was more severe than I'm used to. And so I thought, you know what? (laughs) (laughs) I've got the I've got the perfect solution. And absolutely, I guarantee it's it's a great solution. I won't say what it is for readers who might not like to hear such words, but it worked out really well for me. And I was able to go to work that to um, <laughs> of like the, with it yes. dangling out well it would have been a horror show because there was actually like there was blood on my face because i had to hold my nose so, like part of my face oh. had blood on it and yeah so the first part of my morning was like cleaning up the blood that had happened but i don't know if it was like dry weather i'm not sure but what a way to wake up is like whoa 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 and then running out but it worked out so thank you amanda Bynes and she's man <laughs> Awesome. That is that is awesome. Yeah. I have had I figured I you appreciate that. I have not had bleeding from any weird places uh lately. So I hope you're okay. <laughs> That's not a okay. weird I place. Had any it's a no strange bleeding, let's just say nose that. Bleeds. Um, yeah, I let's hope go you're okay. I hope okay. I think I am, yeah. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> Um, yeah, showstopper. Might as well I'll see yeah, you guys later. Thank you. Good night. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, so uh, we're about a week away from uh, when this was when this comes out. We're roughly about a week away from Christmas, and um, last year around this time, we released an episode about Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, uh, which <gasps> uh, both of us in, I seem to remember both of us enjoying it. I've always enjoyed that story. And uh, this time around, I picked, was my pick again, um, and... 
I don't know how you manage I that. I don't but okay. know, honestly. <laughs> it's just it's the way the pattern establishes itself. But um, at any rate, I did go for something um, Christmas themed in a sense. I mean, this it's it's not a Christmas story in the sense of a Christmas Carol or it's a Wonderful Life or or the or or uh, you know the biblical Christmas story or anything like that, but it does take place over the holiday of Christmas, and the holiday of Christmas does factor in um, into the plot a little bit, uh, and that is uh, because because of a party that's attended in Act that, between Acts right. two and three, etc. But the uh, the play that we are t- the the work of literature that we're going to be talking about tonight is Henrik Ibsen's classic play. A Doll's House, um, and uh, we usually we will go through the history of the book, a little bit of the history of the author, and um, I will of course give my I will be giving the summary, and, and we'll be talking about it. But before we do that, um, we always like to establish how we came about uh, reading this for the first time. And, and since um, I'm running things here, I'll ask Stella, what is your history with the play A Doll's House? My history is a super duper obnoxious co-host repeatedly referencing it. I think whenever it must have been when, uh, whenever there was, (laughs) no, no, I didn't. Only you have you lobbed that one up. You you see, super duper obnoxious co-host, and I mean, you know, I'm going to mention Shag. Only you think that of him. Me and Rob. Everyone and... else thinks he's super. <laughs> he's tri- very charming. No, the uh, no. So yeah, it's Tom. It was Tom. I'm sorry. Let me be clear, people. It was Tom, and he just referenced it all the time, at least three times, and, and you know, three times, three separate episodes, not three times in an episode. I'm pretty sure it was always when there is. It was my picks, you know, with like female leads. He probably mentioned it during Rebecca, probably mentioned it during Jane Eyre. Trying to think of what other time there was a third. Don't. And then so when he finally dropped the bomb that he was going to recommend this, which at first he did it very coyly at Baltimore Mm -hmm. Comic Con because we're all standing around a booth. And he said something like, I know what I'm going to recommend. It's a holiday. And he's like smirking. And I was like, oh, this is not good. (laughs) Is it a doll's house? And he's like, yeah, it's a doll's house. So it was ridiculous. And so here we are. So my history is all wrapped up basically in Tom Henry's. And I keep, you know, there's some, yeah, there's some novel that I feel like it's a, a family, and I think there might be – I think it's in the 70s. It was written in the 70s, and there might be some drug problems. And I thought that was called A Doll's House. Are you thinking House? of, like, Ordinary People by no. Judith Guest? I can't rem- <sighs> okay. No, I can't remember what it is. Maybe I'll think of it. But anyways, I thought that this was what it was about. So when Tom <clears throat> kept referencing its time period and 19th century and things like that, well, clearly that's not the thing. But so basically this is my history and it's wrapped up in, in Tom as well. <laughs> Mine is more extensive than that. Oh, I, um, this I is bet. actually on um, – it's a listener to peel back the curtain a little bit. Um, the the – Sometimes Stella and I pull from um, just things that come along, like you know, March or drama, or you know, or things that we've recently read or discussed. 
but both of us are working from lists that we put together when we first set sat out to um, put the show together. And mine is the list of things that I was assigned to read in junior high and high school, and this was on that list. So it was always going to be... Um, be used. And I had read this um, prior to my teaching career. I had read this twice. Uh, once in my senior year of high school, and another time it was assigned to me in college. And I want, I don't remember what class. I want to say it was like the one class I took on dramatic writing or playwriting. Um, and that was a class where we had to read like an inordinate amount of plays, like 10 or 12 plays or something over the course of a semester. So they all kind of like blurred together. You know, when we were supposed to be looking at how they were written and stuff and while writing plays ourselves. Um, but I do remember reading it in high school in my senior year and um, along with a couple other plays and epic poems and, and things and um, remembering it not very much like remembering that it was like, OK, you know, but it was it wasn't something that stuck with me. But um, I uh, I. It was on the 10th grade curriculum when I was teaching 10th grade, so I'm very, very familiar with this play. Um, so, and that's 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 one of the reasons that it made the list, and it's one of the reasons that I chose it because he's looking oh, at coast. Yeah. Oh yeah, on this, it's, episode. It's an, this was this was a, this was a punt, um, <laughs> but at the same time, but oh, at the my. same time, like I said, it was always on the list because it was assigned to me, and part of the reason that. Um, Part of my reason for for coming to the show, like to begin with, was to uh, take a, another look at the things that like are classically assigned to students and reevaluate whether or not you should keep teaching them and whether or not they're good too. You know, like why do we keep reading these plays and novels and things? So, A Doll's House fits right into that. It was um, it it is from um, I believe eight. Um, the early 1880s. So it's one of those uh, it's one of those things that has been around for quite a long time. And uh, unless you have anything else to say, I'll go right into a little bit of background on the author and the play itself and then into the uh, into the synopsis. Yeah. Okay. All right, so our author is Henrik Ibsen. He was a Norwegian playwright who was born in 1828, and he died in 1906. Ibsen is one of those playwrights who is looked at as one of the founders of modern drama and realism. His major works include Brand, Pierre Gint, An Enemy of the People, Emperor and Galilean, A Doll's House, of course, Hedda Gabler, Ghosts, The Wild Duck, When We Dead Awaken, Pillars of Society, The Lady from the Sea, Rosmersholm. Uh, the master builder and John Gabriel Workman. He is most frequently performed. He sorry. He is the most frequently performed dramatist in the world after William Shakespeare. And by the early 20th century, *A Doll's House* became the world's most performed play. Um, and I'm pulling a lot of this, of course, from Wikipedia. Uh, the play itself is a dramatic domestic drama, something that at the time was actually considered innovative, and was, according to Wikipedia, based on the life of Lauder, Laura. Kyler or Keeler, whose maiden name was Laura Smith-Peterson, who was a good friend of his. Much that happens between Nora and Torvald, our main couple in the play, happened to Laura and her husband, Victor. Similar to events in the play, Laura signed an illegal loan to save her husband. She wanted the money to find a cure for her husband's tuberculosis. 
She wrote to Ibsen asking for his recommendation of her work to his publisher, thinking that the sales of her book would repay her debt. At his refusal, she forged a check for the money. At this point, she was found out. In real life, when Victor discovered about Laura's secret loan, he divorced her and had her committed to an asylum. Two years later, she returned to her husband and his children and, and children at his urging, and she went on to become a well-known Danish author living to the age of 83. Ibsen wrote A Doll's House at the point where Laura Keeler had com been committed to the asylum, and a fate of his friend and the family shook him deeply, perhaps also because Laura had asked him to intervene at a crucial point in the scandal, which he did not feel able or willing to do. Instead, he turned this life situation into an aesthetically shaped successful drama. In the play, Nora leaves Torvald with her head held high, though facing an uncertain future, giving the limitations single women faced in the society of the time. Keeler eventually rebounded from the, same, the shame of the scandal and had her own successful writing career, while remaining discontented with the sole recognition as Ibsen's Nora's, Nora for years afterward. The play's ending um, was actually considered shocking. Uh, in fact, the ending was so controversial, and we'll get into the ending a little bit when I get to the synopsis, uh, that in Germany, the actress named Hedwig Niemann Rob refused to perform the play as written, declaring, I would never leave my children. Since the playwright's wishes were not protected by copyright, Ibsen decided to avoid the danger of being rewritten by a lesser dramatist and by committing what he called the barbaric outrage on his play himself and giving it an alternate ending which the character of Nora does not leave. A production of his of this version opened in Flensburg in February 1880. This version was played in Hamburg, Dresden, Hanover, and Berlin, although in the wake of protests and lack of success, Neiman Robb eventually restored the original ending. Another production of the original version version, uh, some rehearsals of which Ibsen attended, opened on the 3rd of March 1880 at the Residence Theater in Munich. So basically, um, the rewritten ending, Nora, Nora leaves her children and, and her husband at the end, and in the, in the rewritten ending, she is led to her children after having argued with Torvald. Seeing them, she collapses, and the curtain is brought down. Ibsen later called the ending a disgrace to the original play and referred to it as that barbaric outrage. And virtually all productions of today do use the original version of the play, as do nearly all the film versions. Controversy also surrounded it in Great Britain. The only way in which the play was initially allowed to be given in, a London, in London was in an adaptation by Henry Arthur Jones and Henry Herman called Breaking a Butterfly. This adaptation was produced at the Princess Theatre on the 3rd of March, 1884. Writing in his 1896 book, The Foundations of a National Drama, Jones says, A rough translation from the German version of A Doll's House was put into my hands, and I was told that if it could be turned into a sympathetic play, a ready opening would be found for it in the London boards. I knew nothing of Ibsen, but I did know a great deal of Robertson and H.J. Byron. From these circumstances came the adaptation called Break and Butterfly. H.L. Mencken writes that it was a doll's house denaturized and deflagisticated. Toward the middle of the action, Ibsen was thrown to the fishes and Nora was saved from suicide, rebellion, flight, and immortality by making a faithful old clerk steal her fateful promissory note from Krog Krogstad's desk. The curtain fell upon a happy home. There have been a number of film adaptations over the years uh, and other adaptations. In 1922, there was a, there was a silent film that is now lost, uh, starring Ala Nazimova as Nora. 
1923 German silent film called Nora was directed by Bertolt Vertel. Nora was played by Olga Cechnova, who was born Olga Nipper and was the niece of the na- and namesake of Anton Chekhov's wife. Uh, she was Mike Mikhail Chekhov's wife. 1943 Argentine film Casa de Munes. Oh God, I'm butchering the Spanish. Uh, Casa de Munecas, Munesas, starring Delia Garces which modernizes the story and uses the alternative ending. There were two film versions released in 1973. Uh, one was directed by Joseph Lozzi, starring Jane Fonda, David Warner, and Trevor Howard. The other was directed by Patrick Garland, with Claire Bloom, Anthony Hopkins, Denholm Elliott, and Ralph Richardson. Um, I will say that I have seen this version uh, with uh, Anthony Hopkins, who really needs no introduction, and Dem- Denholm Elliott, who... Uh, nerds listening to this podcast will recognize as Marcus Brody from the Indiana Jones movies. It's a really good movie thus far. I mean, it's very, very, it, in a sense, it's set in the 18, into the 1880s. Like it's, it's a period piece, but it feels seventies in places, but it is a very, very good adaptation. Darius Mer. Jeez. Why do I copy these names? Darius, Darius, Merjui's film. Sarah is based on a doll's house with a plot transferred to Iran. Sarah, played by Nikki Karimi, is the Nora of Ibsen's play. In 2012, the Young Vic Theatre in London released a short film called Nora with Hattie Morahan playing what a modern-day Nora would look like. And there was a scheduled 2018 film adaptation set against the backdrop of the current economic crisis and starring Ben Kingsley as Dr. Rank and Michelle Martin as Nora, but I don't have any more detail on that or whether or not it's out yet. But that is the the history of of a doll's house, a play that um, is considered one of the first modern dramas and had an ending that was very controversial uh, for its time and uh, could be controversial today or at least could stir up some debate. So let's get into the plot and see how it plays out. So it is a play in three acts. A Doll's House takes place over the course of three consecutive evenings. Uh, the first is Christmas Eve, the second is Christmas Day, and the third is the day after Christmas, December 26th. It also takes place more or less in the same room. The entire play has one set. It is the living room of the Helmer household. As we open Act 1, Nora Helmer returns home from Christmas shopping and talks to her three children about the fun they had playing in the snow. Her husband, Torvald, then comes in and belittles her about spending too much and then gives her some money anyway. After she acts like his little squirrel or some other pet name, his little lark, his little whatever, and she more or less begs for the money. Torvald, who is on the verge of a big promotion at the local bank, then goes into his study to read and do some more work, and in walks Mrs. Christine Linda, a childhood friend of Nora's who is now widowed and has had to work to help raise her brothers on her own since her husband died and left her with very little to no money. Seeing that Mrs. Linda is much more mature than she is, Nora tries to impress her friend by talking about how she knows things about money and actually is more independent than she lets on. In fact, she took out a loan behind Torvald's back so the two of them could go on a trip to Italy a few years earlier. She claims that Torvald was sick and the doctor said that he had to really needed to go on vacation or else his health was in peril. If you remember what I was just talking about, the background and... uh 
the woman's husband suffering from tuberculosis back in the 1800s, taking the air, as they called it, or going to climates that were warmer or had better air than in the, the cities and different places was considered a uh, good treatment for tubercular patients. Anyway, the truth behind how Nora got that money is actually revealed when Nils Krogstad, who is an employee of Torvalds, shows up to plead with Nora for some help. It seems that he is on the verge of being fired from the bank. When Nora tells him that she can't help him, he begins hinting around that she might know something she wouldn't want her husband to discover, and that she can help him because her husband's the one who is going to fire him. Nora acts like she is not intimidated, and she tells Krogstad that, that his suspicions are correct. Yeah, she did take out a loan by fo forging her father's signature on the loan papers. And it should be noted, at this time in the 1800s, it was illegal for a woman to take out a loan on her own unless she had the signature of a man as a co-signer. Later on in a conversation with Torvald, Nora learns that years ago, Krogstad's reputation was ruined because he was found guilty of... Forgery. Oh, the irony. In Act 2, Nora has a conversation with her children's nanny, Anne-Marie, about how the woman had given up her own daughter for adoption years ago when she became pregnant out of wedlock. Anne-Marie says that she has kept in touch with her daughter over the years and also mentions that she was lucky to go for, to work for Nora's father and raise Nora, and then raise Nora's children. Later, Dr. Rank, who is a family friend, visits Nora and Torvald over the course of a private conversation which, with Nora in which they flirt with one another. Dr. Rank reveals two things. He is dying, and he's in love with her. Nora doesn't take kindly to the second reveal because she says that she is in love with her husband. After Dr. Rank leaves, Nora goes to plead Krogstad's case to Torvald. He tells her why Krogstad is being fired. Torvald and Krogstad were friends back in their school days, and Krogstad uses this relationship to his advantage at work, acting very chummy and familiar with Torvald to kind of suck up to the boss. Torvald does not like being addressed by anything other than Mr. Helmer, so it rankles him that Krogstad calls him Torvald. Nora thinks this is petty and says so, which upsets Torvald, and he throws a tantrum in which he gives Krogstad's termination letter to the maid and is all, so there! <clears throat> this sends Nora into a panic, and the problem is exacerbated when Krogstad comes to the house and proceeds to blackmail her even further, telling her that he doesn't just want his old job back, he now wants Torvald's job. Nora confides to Mrs. Linda the truth, and Mrs. Linda tells Nora that she'll try to talk to Krogstad. Meanwhile, Nora has to keep her husband from checking the mail, because in the mail there is a letter from Krogstad that tells Torvald all about everything that Nora did. This means that she wants him to help her get ready for this fam fancy dress party they're headed to the next night, and specifically, she wants him to coach her on dancing the uh, Italian folk dance, the Tarantella. She knows how to do it, but she fakes being inept at it so that he'll pay attention to her and not check the mail. The final act begins as that party is going on. Mrs. Linda is in the Helmer's living room, and Krogstad comes to see her. She tells him that she wants to get back together with him, revealing to the audience that they had been together years before. Twisting the knife, by the way, is that she was given Krogstad's job at the bank. Well, he's so happy to hear this, not that she got his job, but that she wants to get back together with him. He's so happy to hear this that he says he'll wait until Torvald and Nora get home and demand back that letter that's sitting in the mailbox. Mrs. Linda says, no, secrets, there are too many secrets in the house and they have to come out. He leaves, 
Nora and Torvald enter. Mrs. Linda tells Nora that she thinks the truth must be revealed. Torvald then rushes his wife's friend out the door and makes advances toward Nora. Dr. Rank then interrupts them and drops enough hints to make Nora realize that he is going to go home, shut himself in, and die. After he leaves a calling card marked with a black cross, Torvald understands what's going on. Well, he's no longer interested in having sex with his wife that evening. He then checks the mail. Nora takes this opportunity to make an attempt at leaving. She thinks she's thinking she's actually thinking of suicide at this point, but he stops her and he confronts her about Krogstad's letter. Torvald is furious, and in his rage he tells Nora that she is an unfit mother, and from now on they're only going to be formally married. She will live in his house, they'll put on the appearance of marriage, but she can't raise the kids. While he's yelling at her, another letter arrives. This one is a literal note of forgiveness. Krogstad has written about his blackmailing Nora and how there's no longer any need to do that because he's happy now, and he even returns the promissory note that had the forged signature on it. Torvald reads all of it and says, I'm saved, and then proceeds to talk about his happiness. Nora goes out of the room. She changes out of her, her the costume that she was wearing for the, the party they were at. When she comes back in wearing her street clothes, she tells Torvald she's leaving him, and she lays out why. Her whole life, she has been treated like a doll first by her father and then by Torvald. When she realized that Torvald was more concerned about his own reputation than her livelihood, she realized that she didn't really love him, and this is not a real marriage. Before leaving, she says that them ever having a chance would take the greatest miracle of all. They're having a true, equal marriage. She walks out, and the door shuts behind her. So, that is a doll's house. And as we ask each other every episode of this show before we get into our discussion, did you like this? <laughs> you, <laughs> it was dangerously close to a no, hmm. sir, because I, my huge pet peeve for anything, mm -hmm. really, novels, plays what have you, is when the main character, primarily because <laughs> it happens to be female often, commits suicide because of whatever reason she comes yeah. up with. And so when we were leading, when we were getting, to, and she was calling it her most wonderful day, which you're led to believe that this is what it will be, but we find out really what her most wonderful day mm -hmm. is. I was getting real upset. And then boy, did it take a turn. And then boy, did that turn accelerate very quickly towards the end because a lot of stuff happens at yeah, the very end. So I will say that I was I was entertained and overall I enjoyed it, though, uh, boy, it was hasty towards the end. Yes, it it she hints that she's going to do something drastic even as early as the beginning of act two when she's having that conversation with Anne Marie and she's talking about what it was like to not have her child around because basically Anne Marie was poor. Um, she says the line is like, well, you know, a girl like me who got, who's gotten into trouble, you know, and you know, back then it, it implied that Anne Marie had gotten knocked up as a teenager and um, gave the, gave the baby, gave the girl up for adoption. Um, and um, you know, even uh um, the woman I used to teach with would talk about who is older than me. She's in her sixties would talk about back when she was younger and she was a teenager, they would still send 
pregnant girls to like homes for unwed mothers or like, you know, a girl got pregnant and she kind of went away for a while and she came back and like, you know, there was always kind of the whispers that like, you know, this, you know, something, something had happened, but we aren't going to talk about it. Or, um, uh, if you remember the very first season of Mad Men where Peggy Olsen got pregnant, had a child, gave the child up for adoption and never heard from it. Yeah. And, and I mean, that was, um, from what I understand, that was pretty commonplace. So you're talking about, so she's talking to Anne Marie about it, but you know, it's not that Nora is pregnant. It's that she's contemplating doing something drastic where her children are never going to see her again. And as we get closer and closer to it, you're right. It's setting up that, um, even Krogstad says at one point, you know, you've been hints around. He basically says in the exact line, but he basically says like, you've been thinking about it, haven't you? And he even like talks about basically she was thinking about going and jumping in the lake and you know, then your body will come up all bloated from being drowned and stuff like that. He has this like really gruesome picture because it's like, because he's like, you know, I thought, you know, I, I know you thought about it because I thought about it too. I've been in this situation before and that's why, you know, like, so he's kind of like, you know, laying it on a little thick there. But you're right. At the end, Ibsen has her kind of zig, you know, like it's kind of like where she she realizes something about her husband and decides, no, I'm 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 leaving. I, I don't need to kill myself. I'm just going to leave. I, I mean, personally, it. Like I said, the first time I read this play, I don't think it really resonated that well with me. Um, probably because it was my senior year of high school, you know, just typical high school thing by then. It was like, you know, probably my spring of senior year. And it was like, you know, I had one foot out the door. And then when I read it in college, it was one among many things I read in college. And that's the case with all the number of books that I've reread over the years. But, um, I did teach this for the better part of like seven or eight years. So it grew on me as it did, but I do understand where you're coming from. You say like all of a sudden she completely reverses her decision, like in the last like scene of the play. So, but, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, Nora herself. Actually, we'll start with that. So what are your first impressions with her? And do they change at all? If as the play progresses, yeah, so I, I saw her as very flighty and superficial mm-hmm. in the beginning. And, you know, I think the macaroons and, you know, right. it's just someone who doesn't necessarily take, I mean, very childlike, right? With with the macaroons, no judgment on people who like sweets yeah, but like people like sweets. But just saying that how, and, you know, she hides it from her husband, yeah. she's like, you know, just very childlike and, you know, not taking things very seriously. And that's, I would say, primarily through Act One. And then once you realize actually what she had done, then I grew in respect and regard for her because you feel like she loved her husband and mm-hmm. she sacrificed a great deal to save his life, as she constantly repeats, which it's it's probably true. And, you know, she didn't do it by the most wholesome of means. And it's interesting because you pair her up with Krogstat. Is yeah. that his name? 
Okay. You pair him up because he's villainized for what he did, and he has that one-line zinger about basically what you did is no or no more, no less, mm-hmm. worse than what I did. Or he might have said more what I did less, is yeah. no more. And so you've got – all of a sudden she's got multiple dimensions, and then at the very end <laughs> – it's like every act is is a different one. At the end, I both respect what she was doing, and it also disgusted me to a certain extent, which I'm sure we'll get yeah, into, we uh, because I can understand. I mean, it absolutely is controversial, and I can see sort of, uh, you know, female liberation is very much, I, I think, a theme there. But also, you know, what else is she leaving behind? You have to kind of be cautious with that. But it absolutely... I. It might be a really strong statement to say, but she might be one of the most dynamic characters that I've ever read, especially in a three-act play. I mean, uh, I don't know, maybe two hours? That'd be interesting to see how how long this would take to perform, but to see someone change that drastically and dramatically uh, was was pretty wild. So at first I was like, oh, okay, well, well you know, housewife. And then, oh, okay, so there's some depth here. And then you, you think, oh, no, now there's a shady past. What's happening? So it, you couldn't really put your finger on her because she was changing so much. But changed well, I would say, maybe with the exception of the <clears throat> end. Yeah, well, cause, and, and I think you're right because the, the thing about her as you go through the play, especially as you go through Act 2, is that – what happens in Act Three has is below the surface for quite a while, and as as things start to happen and unfold in the finale of the entire play, if you start thinking back to earlier in the play, you start to see um, you you start to see where it always was on some level between the two of them. And the other thing is that um, you also see that to some extent she starts to realize that she's deliberately putting on an act like at the very beginning you're right she comes off as very very childish and um she is very much a child you know she and and ibsen doesn't really bury the lead with that i mean he has her play hide and seek with her children and 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 they're very much like another playmate of of uh, she's very much another playmate of theirs um you were talking about the macaroons yeah she torvald torvald basically chides her for for eating too many sweets so she um buys a bag of macaroon cookies and you know sneaks them and he catches her and you're right it's like a little kid getting his hand you know is her hand caught in the cookie jar but at the same time her husband had gotten sick and and he and the doctor had said you know you need to get away he's basically you know kind of killing himself here by working too hard or whatever so they didn't have a lot of money and she was savvy enough i guess you could say to take advantage of the fact that her father so these are the story i didn't get too much into it in the plot synopsis her father had recently passed or was dying and what she did was she forged his name and went back and dated it for the time when he was still alive and then her father had died so you have the signature of a dead man dated when he was still alive and this was you know a way for her to uh, save her husband's life so she thought that through pretty well and i think when when you look at act two and you see the flirtation between her and dr rank 
she's got this like pair of silk stockings and she's like look i have silk stockings and he's all like Ooh. and then what on earth oh yeah she's like totally flirting <laughs> with him and in, in the movie version uh the anthony hopkins movie version like the light's really low and they're kind of like giving each other eyes and stuff and she's just playing around but he's like because this is because men he's playing with dr yeah, rank with dr what rank actor you in? act two in the middle of Act Two, she's got a box of stuff in and into silk stockings, and she's just kind of like, you know, she's she's kind of being flirty and silly with him, and because um, she's just being silly, but he is a little more serious. And that's when he tells her that how he feels about her, and then she gets very uncomfortable because one of the things she does talk to him about is the fact that she feels that she can be herself around him because. Dr. Rank doesn't really care what she's like. She's like, you don't try to change me the way that Torvald does. And by the end of Act 2, she's dancing the Tarantara like an idiot on purpose. And as an audience, you realize she's doing it on purpose to stall him. Like, she's becoming... She always was smart. She's just kind of becoming smarter, so to speak, over the course of the play. So you're right. You see the change in her, and you realize it actually was always there. It was just... And, and, and if you look at her interaction with a number of other characters... You see that, like, she has the guts to stand up to Krogstad, like, right away. You know? She's scared, but at the same time, if she was terrified by him, she wouldn't have told him that, you know, she forged it. Um, forged the note. But we, but, but at the same time, you're right, she's, like, really, really childish. And Mrs. Linda is her friend. Um, what did you make of that character, and how do you find her to be a foil for Nora? Like, what purpose does she serve in this play? Before I answer that question, I actually have a follow-up sure. question to um, what you initially asked with Nora. And since we talked about the, the variations of Nora, do you think there was a true Nora that we saw? Was she putting on an act during one and two? Has she been living an act her whole life? And really the true Nora is what we saw in three? I think so. At the end? I think that's what, I think that's what Ibsen intends us to think. Okay. Because I think and, – and, and, and some of his symbolism and, and his stuff is not very subtle – um, I think that at the end of the play, where she goes into the other room after he has yelled at her, and then he has said, I'm saved, you know, they got the letters. She goes in the other room, she says, I'm taking off my costume. And she comes out, and he thinks that she's going to come back out, and like she's going to be like in her PJs, right? Because it's late. Let's go to bed, right? right? And she comes out in her just in her street clothes, like because like, she's going to leave. She's got the bag packed. And um, he's like, what the heck? And, and and so I think that's supposed to symbolize that like she's finally starting to realize who she is. And, mm -hmm. and so this is a little bit closer to the real her. And there's also the fact that um, when she was about to leave before he came in with the letter and started screaming at her, she had her costume from the party on dress from the party on she put his robe over her head and she was going to run out and go do it she's going to run out and go jump in a lake um right. which in norway <laughs> in the winter is like you know if if you don't drown hypothermia will get you um of course so that was that was more performative but in this case there's like a deliberate thought outness mm. <laughs> that's a word to what she's doing. So I think you're right. I, I think the point being that, like, I think Ibsen intended us to think that she is finally seeing her true self after all these years. Mm. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, gosh. I mean, what a, 
what a stressful life that, you know, to be putting on an act and people live like this every day. But just to to think that you're putting on an act for for people and then finally the gig is up. So that is very freeing for her. So, you know, that's a reason for her to be celebrated at the end is that she can finally be her true authentic self. She kind of realizes it as the play goes on, too. Like, I think you're supposed to get the sense at the beginning of the play that she doesn't fully realize it, that she's been putting on an act for these men in her life, her whole life. Like, maybe on some level she does, but she doesn't fully grasp it. I think it hits like a hammer, but we'll get into that with uh, the yeah, direction. Yeah, yeah. So then, yeah, you're talking about <clears throat> how Mrs. Lind is a foil for, or if she mm-hmm. is uh, a foil. So the idea of a foil is that it's like the opposite, basically. Yeah, you put them inside. So you, you can get a juxtaposition out of it. So it's it's not yeah. necessarily an antagonist, but it could be an antagonist. Sure. She might have qualities that Nora does not. So I think I they're almost really similar because you learn from Mrs. Lynn that she didn't have a happy marriage. Mm-hmm. She married that guy for money, basically, and it was almost altruistically because it seemed like she was doing it because her mother was sick and she had to take care of her brother. So she was in like dire financial straits. And so she had to marry Mm -hmm. this guy. And you would think up to a certain point that Nora is actually pretty happy and she does truly love her husband. So I think there are, you know, there could be some similarities there, but you realize that they're both, I think they, turns out that they were both in unhappy situations. Mm -hmm. And then with, but the, I guess the opposite is also that since Christine is now a widow, she's had some time to be on her own. So she's had that liberation, that female liberation that perhaps... Nora is hoping for and the fact that she gets to find a job hopefully and support herself I I think is is freeing and something that we find out Nora has been wanting and something that Nora will look for later on at at the end of the novel uh, play so I I think there are it's almost like Lind is the the future of of Nora mm-hmm. And then uh, Christine ends up becoming Nora, perhaps, at the end. So they, like, role reversal. I don't know if it's, like, a stark, stark contrast because I do see some similarities between the two. But, uh, yeah, I would focus on the sort of the single ladyhood and then (laughs) what she can get out of that and then, yeah, the marriage. There's certainly a happiness that she'll have at the end. Um, Who's uh, she? Mrs. Linda... Um, but it, okay. it's a happiness. It's an interesting happiness because it's her her point was to Krogstad was that I don't want to get back together with you because I'm still in love with you. I want to get back together with you because I need somebody to take care of. And Krogstad was widow. To take care yeah. of or to be taken to take care, care of? To care of. To help. Because Krogstad was a widower and had children. And he's like, you you would do that? And she has the line. It's something along the lines of like two on one wreck is better than one on a, on their own or something you know like we can be there for each other you know we they you could tell that they would grow to love one another again i mean he would be really really happy with her no matter what but like you could tell that sure. she would eventually let her guard down and there would be something you would hope something more genuine than this sort of weird fake puppy love that that nora puts on for her husband um but you're right i think you're right that there's a, um that the road that Christine Linda has had to 
lead up until that point because she hasn't seen Nora in like 10 years or so has been very, very rough. And that's the road that Nora essentially has ahead of her. Maybe even tougher because at least the way society worked in those days was that there was something acceptable about a, being a woman with a job if you were a widow, but not if you were divorced. There was a real stigma still attached to divorce. So it's very possible that Nora had much more of a of a harder road ahead of her. Um, do you think they'll get divorced or do you think that it would just be like a separation and that she's like just That's left? a good question. I'm not sure. Um, I don't think – I think that Torvald would fight it to a certain extent, that he would try to try to hold on as much as he could to their marriage. And the ending does have some ambiguity because it seems like there's a hopefulness uh-huh. of it. Uh, you know, the most wonderful thing of all and like questions it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, I mean, it says, well, I mean, this is one of your questions, but the uh, stage direction says a hope flashes across his mind. So I'm not sure if he, you know, realizes what this could mean, what it could take and, and maybe has a hope that it will happen. But I, yeah, I do s- potentially foresee him chasing after her, yeah. you know, maybe giving her some time, but holding out hope that they'll get back yeah. together. Now I will say that there are aspects of Christine of, of Mrs. Linda that are, are very much in contrast with Nora, especially when you first see them. And I think one of the reasons that she comes in at the point where she does, and not just to set up for exposition's sake, um, is that it heightens the immaturity of Nora, because the one major difference they have when when she shows up is their maturity. Mrs. Linda is a much more mature woman than Nora, who is such a child at the beginning of the story. And the reason she essentially tells her what she did is to kind of in that it, it's a very childlike way of doing it, like you know, to kind of prove that she's not as immature as I'm not as mature as you think I am. See, this is what I did. It's it's a very, very mature thing to do, ironically. So there's mm-hmm. that aspect where they are kind of foils for one another, at least at the beginning of the story. But by the end, um you see that they've kind of moved closer together, like in your very much. Um Yeah, and Christine I think also likes to hide uh she likes things out in the open. Mm-hmm. And I think pretty blunt honesty. And then Nora's Kind of, you know, unless it's going to benefit me, she's going to keep it pretty close to her. Yeah, Nora can be very sneaky as well, and and we'll get to um, we'll get to that because we'll get to her relationship with Torvald. We've hinted a little bit, but I do want to talk about Krogstad a little bit because he is essentially the antagonist of the play, or at least <laughs> for Nora, for at the for for the for the the MacGuffin of the play. Oh my god! Is the letter right? It's it's the forged loan note. And the blackmail, you know, that that's what keeps the conflict going. Now, Nora's, and he is essentially antagonizing her through the any, any confrontation, that any conversation they have. They never have a pleasant conversation. Is he a developed character, or is just, he just serve this purpose of being... I mean, he does change by the end to the extent that he drops the blackmail and he's happier. So he's slightly a dynamic character, but is he ever anything more than just um, just there to, to to cause her pain? I I don't really think so. I I mean, there's some later development with him and just figuring out 
Well, no, because I wasn't satisfied with, I had to think about this. I wasn't, I wanted to know more about the background and learn why he had a forgery because he was making it seem as if he had done it also for altruistic reasons, but you never get the backstory of that. And so I, yeah, he was almost like a prop, a a prop uh, along with the letter that was the the main hindrance and yeah the the bad guy so I I wouldn't think so. I don't think so yeah I think and I think kind of Doctor Rank on some level also serves Rank. a similar purpose where they they're both like they're almost like plot devices in themselves like Krogstad could have been more developed we could have we could have known a little bit more about him and about the why of, of his crime in the past, since Torvald seems to be so offended by it. And um, with Dr. Rank, um, you know, he, he doesn't need to... He, Dr. Rank actually doesn't really need to do much more than, you know, tell Nora he loves her and then and then go and die because that reveals because it reveals something about her character that she is that she is a lot more understanding about the world and she has she can have a relationship with another person that is not based on like the silliness that you see with her husband so rank and torvald in a sense are opposites of one another in that sense that there's that contrast where you put the two relationships with her and those two men next to each other and there's a juxtaposition but yeah your Krogstad. There are points in this play where Krogstad comes off as almost like a mustache twirling villain, you know, where he's like threatening Nora and and he says, "Well, I want Torvald's job now." It's like you know, wahaha in a sense. Um, but you're right that like Ibsen so wants the ending of this play to be what it is that he has to rush Krogstad out the door because he served his purpose, you know, like he blackmailed her. Torvald found the letter at that point. Krogstad has one more job. It's to forgive her. And he doesn't even need to be there to do it. He sends a letter and it, it, it boils down to Torvald and Nora at the end. Why does he need to forgive Nora? Because, or do you mean in a legal sense, forgive her, forgive the debt? Yeah, he needs to forgive her. He needs to stop blackmailing her and forgive her and basically absolve her of all her problems. Okay. Because that provides the catalyst for her realizing how horrible Torvald has treated her in the years. I mean, because she's really, with the exception of the forgery, she's made good on her signature. Oh, she's... And her father's signature, so it's not like she's done anything, per- like, yeah. if she had been going back against the, you know, yeah. then I would think ill of her. But he's the one that's been, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, in fact, she even says, you know, I've been paying the loan. Like, she's like, I make my payments. He's like, yeah, more or less. But he's like, he doesn't care. He's like, I've got this paper. I have you in my control. I have, you know, I have the upper hand. So, like, she could have paid the loan off. He would have still held on to the paper. And she couldn't exactly sue him or tell her husband. You know what I mean? Like, he knows the power he has by simply possessing that piece of paper. But he needs to give it back to her at the end of the play and for her, in order for her to realize her marriage is a sham. Which we get. Um, and we have Torvald, her husband, who is emotionally abusive. And we see that early on. 
So like, you know, like, what do you, I mean, what did you make of him? Like, you know, am, am I being, or am I being too dramatic here? I don't, well, that is, yeah, it's kind of hard. Uh, th- those are heavy words to say. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily see him as emotionally abusive. I saw him as chiding her, mm-hmm. but certainly chiding her as a father would a child, and she's acting that way, so it seems to make sense. I think the real, the full brunt of the force comes at the at the very end when you get a true look in his at his character but yeah i'm trying to i feel like there's a film that i could relate this very well to and i can like picture the scenes in my mind but i can't i can't think about what it's called but I don't see that so you'll have to give me some evidence to back up your claim so we see the chiding at the beginning and we see that he treats her like a child or a pet. She plays into it, right? Your little lark, your little squirrel. In the movie version with Anthony Hopkins, she literally makes animal noises. She's like, can I have some more money? Like, she's like whining like a puppy. And it's really irritating. But she's supposed to be irritating at the beginning. It starts to show in Act 2 where he fires Krogstad, where he sends the letter. Because she asks him flat out why he's firing her and he's got and she calls it petty because it's a petty reason he doesn't like the guy he does a good job and he and he and he does a um you know he, he does what he's supposed to do but he's just like i don't like the fact that he's so nice that, that he calls me torvald and she's like torvald that's so petty and it pisses him off and he's like you want petty i'll show you petty and and um and she she gets she actually gets a little scared. She's because she's first of all she's like you really shouldn't do this, and she's getting scared because on some level because of what this is going to trigger, right? Because if she if he fires Krogstad, Krogstad's got the blackmail going. This is going to make things worse for her, you know the the plot. But at the same time, she's also a little scared of him because he is just he is just laying into it. And he is he is getting like more and more city and 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 then later on, she has to kind of play into him controlling her and like, like basically like you know, telling her what to do when they're dancing and everything. And as you go on, there's this into Act Three and like you know you've got this um it it's there's this whole thing where he talks about like there's this possession aspect of his relationship with her where like he sees her as something other than his wife that like, you know, he can show her off at the dance and, and all these things. And it's, it's this kind of existence that she doesn't realize she was living in until the end. Cause when, when, you know, when he, bear, when he shows finally, you know, when he finally goes off on her after seeing it, like, you know, and it's, and it's all about him and it's all about what she is ruining him and all of these things. And it's like, you see that he's always thought of her as a possession and object and he will do with her as he pleases. And you know, that's, I mean, maybe I am being too harsh with the word abusive, but it's certainly, um, not a healthy relationship between two people who are supposed to be married. No, I mean, I, I agree with the word possessive yeah, certainly, yeah. but, and, and it's only, I mean, who knows how often she's made him angry. I mm-hmm. feel like, because there's so much on the line here, she's been so open and forthright, and that's why 
he gets a little intense, but I feel like all the other times she, she certainly listens to him. I, you know, um, in that scene with, that you're talking about how the reason why he wants to get rid of him, because he said, you know, he can overlook potentially his tainted, you know, what he has yeah. done, but it's the fact that he talks to him as, and it, I didn't see it necessarily as, you know, him just calling him by, you know, Helmer or whatever. But the fact that he's trying to be buddy-buddy with him because they do have a past. And I think that goes towards more, especially once you see the full picture at the very end, towards uh, his reputation. Mm -hmm. Um, Because he – reputation is so important to her husband that I think he just doesn't want anyone to bring him down. So it's, you know, he can get over the fact that this guy did something that tarnishes his reputation, but he doesn't want to be in, in the crosshairs. So I'll defend him a little bit for his, at least the fact that it, it makes sense uh, towards the end. So I think it's a little bit more than just him calling him by his name, but yeah. the fact that associating with him could be bad for, Homer's reputation. It's going to make me look, especially since he's about to be the new boss, you know. Um, and uh, even even with the party, so they're going to the party on this, the twenty sixth, and he's they're practicing the dance and everything. And even with the party, he's so concerned about how she is dancing and how it's going to make him look, you know. Sure. And then. Like he show he's showing her off like a trophy basically, and he's got some weird line when they come back and he's hitting on her about he like you know sometimes he stands back and he admires from her from afar and pretends that they're like secret lovers or something. It's this weird weird dialogue where you're looking at this going really because he's hitting on her, but then at the end when her husband is when he finds the letter and reads it, he's like, "Do you know what you've done to me?" You know, like he's so enraged at her because of the way it's gonna, you know, I'm I'm in his hands now. Like this is gonna destroy me. And then finally, and this is what flips the switch for her finally at the end. Whereas he gets the second letter, and he says, "I'm saved," and she's like, "And and and I, oh you too, yeah." And it's like she was the one who was in trouble here. Numb nut, um, you know, and so you can tell that it's Torvald, Torvald, the fa- best person, the, the favorite person, the most important person in Torvald's life is Torvald, and um, to such a detrimental degree, which kind of gets to the question I had about Doctor Rank, which is that they they have a much different relationship now. If we were using modern day portmanteaus for uh, relationship names, we obviously we call Nora and Torvald Norvald. <laughs> or Tora, Tora, but I think I like Norvald better. It sounds like Norwal, Norvald. Um, but what about uh, what about Nor- like if if you were like, are you shipping Nora and Doctor Rank Stella? What is it about? Am I shipping yeah, those? I mean, two? what is it no. about? Well, you're not obviously you're not, but I mean, but I don't ship any of what, them. Really. What is it about those two? Like, what is their relationship like, and why is she able to be honest with him in a way that she can't with her husband? <sighs> Uh, well, she's not completely honest. She could have, she could have fixed the problem right there and gotten the loan. And she didn't because he made a pass at her and she was wise in that moment and backed off because she realized how much he cares for her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he takes her seriously. I think that even though he 
she might not have known. I actually, you know, after that whole conversation and, and when he practically reveals without fully revealing that he is in love with her, I think she may have been treated differently than her husband treated her. And then when he reveals it, she might have feel like she's in the same sort of birdcage again and, you know, possession and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there's history there. I think she feels like he takes her seriously. And so in that she can be honest with him. I also think that he has seen her, uh, with the ex- so the father, she grew up with him. Christine, she went to school with her. So Rank probably came at a time in her life where she was more adult-ish. Mm-hmm. So I-, I think there there might be something special about that as well. But yeah, I think I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting, and I I also wonder if it's because she, he is dying and she I, I think there's some freedom there because if somebody dies they take all their secrets with them unless of course they have some sort of you know written statement at the end that comes out about everything but I think there could be freedom there in, in telling him all of this knowing that he's on his way out I mean he's basically told her all about the, the black cross or whatever it is on the postcard mm. <sighs> So I, I think there's some some freedom there as well. Yeah, and and that's something. And there's that scene um, where he he totally harshes Torvald's uh, Torvald's buzz because um, they come home from the party and um, Torvald's drunk um, and uh, Rank comes in. Rank's toasted and he's all goodbye, 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 house, goodbye, good night, moon. And um, and and he's okay. he's saying he's literally saying goodbye. Like he even she even says like she's like have she starts talking about to him about that patient he had, and did you finish your research? And he's like, yes, the conclusion. So what I thought they would be, and they're they're hinting around Torvald speaking in code essentially, so that he's telling her that yes. that he knows that it's that this it's time, right? Because he didn't he tell like her earlier like don't tell Torvald he can't handle it, you know like he yes that's true yeah he he doesn't want to know about like the actual end yeah so he leaves the he leaves the calling card with the black cross on it after he leaves and um, but like even then Torvald is like she says like you know and your research and he's like oh come now little Nora talking about scientific research you know my pet poop 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 you know and you're like. You're like, and by then you're just sitting there staring, going like, "Shut up, Torvald!" <laughs> you know, like, you condescending jerk. But yeah, I, I think I think all of the points you made were right, and I think you're right that the the fact that he is dying just kind of allows for that freedom because there isn't, you know, nothing's going to come out. It's going to kind of die with him. Um, but you notice that that most of the communication in the play that is of the big news comes through some sort of written communication and not necessarily at least until the very end through like them talking to each other everybody dances around things and conversations it's not until the end of the play where we get her directly talking to her husband about something i would imagine he did that on purpose henrik ibsen why 
Well, because the original sin was all about something being written down. And it's all about, like, official papers and statements. So I think it makes sense to go back to that repeatedly. And it also, I think, shows how superficial conversations are between husband and wife. And once everything is stripped away and all the burden is released, suddenly they sit down across from each other and they have a serious conversation. So I think you can see just how, yeah, their relationship was so surface level Mm -hmm. and they don't talk about anything serious and, and all He's so focused on the mail, you know, and all of this important because he's a serious businessman yeah. and all of that stuff. But, yeah, that that's my thinking. Yeah, I think you're right. And to add to that, I would say that, again, subtlety not being not. I mean, there is some subtlety in this play, but what's the symbolism? The symbolism is subtlety and the symbolism is not something that that's always there. And uh, the symbolism of in, in that point he burns the letters, right? Like he gets Krogstad's note. He yells at Nora. Yeah. It's so horrible. It's so like, just cause not only is it like, it would have been more respectful in some way, or it would have been less, less harsh. Had he simply thrown her out of the house but he's like, no, you're going to live here and be a prisoner in your own house because I need to keep up appearances that we're married. So nobody's going to know what the hell goes on in this house. But when we go out there, you sure as hell better act like my wife. And that's even worse. That's like, oh, my God. Like, just like if you think about what he's talking about, she's he's he is turning into her like, you know, he is he is he is that is that's abusive. But. So he gets the second letter, I'm saved, the flip, the switch flips, and she's like, oh my god, this is what he's done to me, and he burns the letter, right? He throws it into the fire, and almost like that symbolizes that now all of the ghosts are gone, all of that is gone, and now they're actually going to have that conversation. She takes off her costume. The end of the play, like right up to that point, gets very symbolism heavy, because it represents like now we're down to this and you notice that like all of the other characters in the play have finished serving their purpose before Nora and Torvald get to that conversation that Mrs. Linda basically says they need to have. Do we realize early on that Torvald is much of a problem in Nora's life as Krogstad or is it, or do we realize it with her at the end? Yeah, I think we realize it with her, which is why, it it took such a turn for me because it was very sudden. And even I was I was slightly confused. The stage directions were what was confusing me slightly because she like takes on a cold visage. Like she physically mm-hmm. transforms and has a cold and I'm like, What's happening right now? And then you have to read and then you're seeing it this all and then you see her and yeah, it's all coming together. So I think which is, I think that works out really well that the audience, it's revealed as Nora. So we're very much alongside her in this journey. Do you think the stage directions help? Um, they're really detailed, especially like in the scene setting in the beginning of each act, because it's one set. 
so Ibsen um, describes, and this is something you see in a number of modern plays. Um, I think of Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, which is another play that takes place in the same room. But the lighting, certain set decoration indicate the passage of time and, the, and, and establish the mood. Um, how does how does Ibsen like really being specific with his stage directions like help and how does it how does it hinder? I I guess I disagree with you. I don't think they're as descriptive as I read in others. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly more descriptive than like Shakespeare. That's just me. Oh sure. I I think for the most part it's it's a lot about entrances and exits and they didn't help they made me confused because i was trying to figure out this house Mm -hmm. and i know at the beginning they gave the layout but it also seems like they're living with other people this is more of like an apartment thing because i think people are living above them yeah it's like a condo or something (laughs) and she was like and the confusing part like the, I was trying to figure out with the Krog set because she turns around and says, "Oh, he's he's not outside, but but he was outside the door and like with the mailbox." And so I'm trying to figure out where is this mailbox exactly? Yeah, I, so, I would imagine there's like yeah, there's like an yeah. antechamber or something like there's a, there's a room and then there's the room inside. Like so, there's like a parlor room and then there's the the rooms inside the house and stuff. But yeah, it does get a little confusing. Yeah, so I think layout of the house didn't necessarily – I mean, it should have helped, but I was just trying to figure out. I needed to visualize. But with the facial, I think, directions or feelings potentially, feelings and how they should be displayed on the face, that's helpful, especially since as readers we can't see them. And it gives us hints potentially what the author intends or what we can – expect or hope from the the characters i will say that the um the uh, the one film version i've seen remedies some of that by um changing the setting in a couple of scenes uh so the conversation between in uh, the conversation between mrs linda and krogstad where um she says, let's get back together in the film version that I've seen takes place at Krogstad's house. And so, so like he goes, to, she goes to see him and then she goes back to the Helmers to talk to Nora, which I think on stage in that setting, you have to come up with some sort of contrivance to get Krogstad to the house. So it was basically, she called for him from there or something, but um, because a movie can change sets in a way that, a, that a stage play can't often do, um, they take a little bit of advantage of the fact that you know they can they can show him they can show them somewhere else. So um, you know you can you can open it up a little bit. So let's talk about the ending. I only have a couple of questions about the ending, but the first one is that at the end of the play, she leaves. Um, she leaves behind her husband. She leaves behind her children. She leaves behind everything. And. This caused controversy back in the 1880s, as I read in my in my history 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 section. Um, so that's the question I want to I want to start with. I got three questions, and the first one is: Did she do the right thing? It's complicated. I I can't say yes or no to that. I'm afraid it's 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 too much to answer. Okay. For herself, if if no other person was involved, absolutely. 
I think, un- unfortunately, there are kids involved. And even how she leaves, it's, you know, it's a little spiteful. You know, you were talking about how spiteful Helman Helmer was being, t- Torvald, yeah. uh, was being <laughs> in regards to his wanting to fire Cragstat, Cragstat. And here it's similar because she almost throws back his words in his face mm-hmm. and saying, you know, well, you wanted to take the kids away and, and up, bring them up anyways. And so now I'm giving you that opportunity to do that. So, hey, man, you know, w- women's liberation. But in order to free herself, she's also abandoning those children. And they've done really uh, nothing, unfortunately. You know, they're, they're the innocents they're all, in the yeah, matter. They're all under 10 years old. They're all. So I, I can't really. And I don't know if there's ever going to be a situation where they're not necessarily innocent in the matter. But I was talking with someone today in the workroom. I said, oh, wait, what do you think about this? And she did make a right point that obviously there's so much more pressure and I think negative miasma or stigma on a mother leaving than there is a man mm-hmm. of a father. Yes. Which is – and I was like, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty true. I, I can't explain it, but yeah, that's absolutely true. So, you know, I wish that she – and, you know, I think to myself, what – Really, would it have changed had she brought her kids along? Like, she would still be supporting herself. She would just have kids with her. And she could potentially be, I mean, she could still play with the kids. She'd be with on their level, but she could be a new person and and raise them as as she sees fit. But she's got to just, it's like she's got to strip away everything. And so it's just very extreme. I understand why. But it's it's both good and bad. So I, I can't answer yes or no. Those are my thoughts on that question. The pro- This is the problem, one of the problems I see in the play from, from viewing it from a contemporary standpoint. Because Nora back in the 1880s would have had very few rights as a divorced mother. Um, and Torvald would have gotten custody of the kids with no problem. So no matter what the courts would have probably sided with him. So the fact that she, even if she tried to take her kids away, if he, if he wanted to, he could go get them. Um, nowadays. And you're, I mean, what is your evidence for that exactly? You're saying America in the 1880s? I think just in general, I, I've, I, I think okay. I've read this in, in, um, uh, in Norway, like, um, even, and there have been like, you know, laws, uh, laws helping, uh, women just in, in, in this country and other countries helping women escape that would allow women to escape marriages that were um, even worse than this um, have been passed to protect protect mothers and, and even and provide a more even playing field or more level playing field in terms of custody battles and things like that um, but so that that's one thing but the other thing is is this is something that I always pointed out when I used to teach this to my students as kind of a counterpoint because a lot of them do get offended by the fact that she leaves her children behind she's not a mother to them she's a playmate to them Anne Marie the, the nurse is raising them but she she never once in the course of the three acts the, the few times we see them does anything that suggests that she's doing anything parental and neither does Torvald and the idea that they've essentially given given them to the nanny to raise and the nanny's the one who does all of the you know like the nanny's the one who reminds them to you know 
wash their hands before dinner or whatever and, 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 and establishes the rules. And the only time we ever we see Nora interact with her children where they're like, they're telling them all about their day and like, oh, you know, my little dolls. And she even says, like, you know, I kind of started doing that with the kids. I started playing with them when they're like, they were my dolls too. And, and she plays hide and seek with them. So she's not necessarily an adult around them. I don't think it justifies leaving her children, but I think that it's something that you have to kind of add to the perspective of when you talk about like, you know, leaving her children and things like that. Um, you have to remember that she is not, she's not a mother. She is a playmate to these kids. And so the idea that they actually, you know, you know, I, how they would react would be very, very interesting to see. And, and, you know, and then there's, of course, the issue of when people do get divorced or they do fight in marriages, and this is a little more modern day of a take on it, the issue of staying together for the sake of your children and whether or not that's healthy. I know that's probably a lot to unpack. Yeah, am I supposed to respond to yeah. any of that? Yeah, go um, ahead. I'll say... I think part of it isn't her fault. It's the times in regards to the play thing and the nurse. I think that's that's going to be, I mean, I'm going to assume that Norway is similar to mm-hmm. England or something in the 1880s. Yeah. So even though I pressed you for evidence, I guess I'll just go along and say that, sure, it's the same. And I also think it's um, supposed to imply that while they're not, you know, while they're not rich, they're well off enough to afford a maid and a nurse. Yeah, which is weird because it seems like they're in financial trouble until he gets this job. Like he's even telling her to be frugal. So it's just weird. But you can tell I think I think she loves them uh, because, you know, she's really wants to get these gifts for them. I think, you know, there's concern for that more than for herself. And at first you think that she actually is selfish because she's asking for some money. But then again, the depth thing, you figure out really what she's doing. Mm -hmm. She's squirreling. Uh She's squirreling (laughs) the money away. And I think they would miss her because the hint I get from that is when she said she couldn't play with them anymore. And then the nurse comes down later and says, they really miss you. They wonder why you're not with them as you normally are. And so I, I think there's a hint that they would uh, they would miss. And then what was your final thing? It's basically the point um, staying together for the kids. Oh sure. Uh, Is that keeping up appearances in the same way that like Torvald was like, you know, you can't raise these children, but you're still going to be my wife because. He, uh, he suggested twice because the second time around where she's he like, does, yeah, yeah, he's like, can we, we can still be together? Can we, can we stay live in the house like we're brother and sister? Which ew, but um, <laughs> I know that's not what he meant. But yeah. no, sure, I think I I see it as two different. Like on the obviously, you know, on paper it's the same thing, but with the one it was very negative and with the second one it was like the curtain has been dropped so they both i think understand and he might now be in an unreality but she's certainly more understanding of of what or who he truly is and i i guess that could still technically be negative but i feel like it's actually it'd be good because it'd be the first 
honest moment that they may have had in their entire relationship. And so maybe to strip it away was because at first I really didn't like what Christine did because she was saying like this, you need to let that letter go because there's a bunch of weird stuff going on in this house and everything needs to be out in the open. And I'm like, that is not your decision to make. <laughs> know, <lady."> right? <laughs> but anyways, it did strip everything down. And so from there, you know, things could get better. I think, you know, we get into with this, you know, staying together for the kids. I and you, I'm sure uh, we teach kids that might be in split households. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, I think, I mean, I think it will continue to be hard for them. I, they get used to it, but when it's happening, it's really rough. It's really rough. And, you know, I teach eighth graders, so they're already somewhat, you know, chemically imbalanced because of their hormones and things like that. And so then, you know, you're having, I mean, you're seeing kids. I mean, there's one currently going through something really weird with his family and, you know, you've got these little Boys that are, uh, they're 13 years old. They're young men, I guess. Young men crying, and it's like, oh gosh, what is going on? So I would want them to, I kind of, you know, however painful it will be for me, sometimes you got to think about someone other than yourself, I'm afraid. And uh, this also might come down because you and I have different, like, religious perspectives as well. And so I feel like it's it's going to be hard and it would be painful, but uh, she should suck it up and <laughs> stay with that guy. And, and my hope is that because everything, like I said, has been stripped away, that uh, he'll realize uh, that he needs to, to make a change because I think it's going to come on his side. And so maybe if they were living apart but in the same house, like this brother-sister situation, um, and then sort of steadily build up their relationship one would hope i always see the positives and the negatives in and and i and and like you i teach students who are whose parents are going through divorces or or who are who are the children of single parents or whatever um and i've seen students who act out because they're going through these but then i've also seen friends and um now I'm of the age where I have friends who have divorced their spouses too. And, um, the decision actually was a really good decision because they were in terrible situations where the, their spouses were emotionally abusive mm-hmm. or physically abusive in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but in other cases, I've seen like parents of friends that I've had for years or even friends of mine or even parents of my students who have sucked it up and stayed together and to a certain extent. And um, sometimes it has been, it has worked itself out well and sometimes it has worked itself out and basically everybody's miserable. So there's, it's a really complicated issue and a discussion to have. And, which is why I always push back, would push back when I hear the, that's horrible, she left her children. Because I think you, the discussion we're having is the discussion you need to have around this play in the ending. In that, like, you know, when you're an adult and you make these decisions, um, 
you do have to think through the consequences and the ramifications. We never get what happens beyond this. And, you know, her thought, and I don't, this is going to, this is going to come off as really insensitive. So I'm going to apologize for her events because, because I, <laughs> no, be, and you'll understand what I mean. So before she leaves him and before he goes off, he finds the letter, she's going to kill herself. And there is something very easy about that. And there's something almost like the old immature Nora about that. And I'm not saying that suicide is easy and suicide is immature. But in the context of everything, it's the dramatic type of thing that's like the polar opposite of sucking up to her husband and being the little lark and the squirrel. And her decision at the end to do what she does shows a growth and maturity that her suicide would not have. Am I making sense there? Yeah. Yeah. So but I'm, you're also preaching to the choir because I started off this whole show mm-hmm. by saying that I hate any yeah. sort of literature that the heroine, especially, yeah. but anyone and kills himself. And I don't know if that was a trope during this day. Like it, maybe it was, you know, we're talking about the late 1800s. There were, maybe there were a number of stories where like tragedies were, were, female characters killed themselves like that um and ibsen like purposely waited until the end to turn it on its or turn it on its head and i do like the fact that he turns it on its head um i like the point she does make i mean leaving him or not i like the point that he she does make at the end where she essentially turns to him and says we need to have a partnership here that i'm not your lark i'm not your squirrel i'm not your possession and that if we're ever going to have a real marriage that like we're doing this together it's not me you know i'm not here for you you know and i think i mean to me that's one of the points that ibsen really is making about the 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 equity in a marriage i guess yes yeah i <laughs> i have nothing to add to that okay. Um, and I think he comes to realize that in the end, or at least hope, I'm hoping that it's not just, I'm going to play the game so I can get her back, but he actually works hard at it and, and they are able to, uh, get back together. But yeah, I think so. So, I mean, for its time, pretty, uh, pro women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much. Um, and what, I mean, like, the last question I have before we get to the, the ultimate question, um, what do you think happens? She dies. You think she dies? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That'd be the easy answer. No, she I think she finally. To death. <laughs> oh my gosh! As she goes out, yeah. well, she did say, yeah, she was going to go out there. Yeah. No, I think you know, which was really sick because that whole image about your hair is going to fall like... out when you float to the sub, and then all of a sudden she's thinking like, hmm, it's going to be cold, and I'm like, really, you're going to go with the thing that that terrible person put in your mind? It was terrible. It was Ugh. dumb. But, uh, you know, why not just throw yourself under a train, cough, cough, Anna Karenina? Um, I think, <laughs> yeah, I think she, I don't know, quote unquote, makes it. I, I hope that she goes back to her, her hometown and uh, gets a job. I think it's going to be tough. I think to a certain extent we might have started a bad circle 
mm-hmm. because I think there's going to be this reputation that follows her around. And so she becomes almost Krogstack, Krogstack, mm-hmm. the big K. Yeah. And so, you know, how easy is it going to be for her? Not very. I, I'm hopeful that that happens, but I'm also hopeful that they might, that uh, her husband starts to respect her place as a wife and as a woman and and that they're able to get back together but i don't think that's a matter of days weeks or months but years i'm you're pretty much saying exactly what my thoughts were too um i think that i think we both acknowledge like the really really hard road she has ahead of her especially in this then that day and age um if this were set in the modern day she could essentially find work it might not be easy, but it's certainly harder back then. But yeah, you're right. It's like you know, you, you do kind of hope in the back of your mind that like they they do work this out, especially if on some level she does love him. You know, like they like it could happen in the same way that like Crockstad and Nora, Crockstad and Mrs. Linda could grow to love each other. So, you know, kind of coming back around to that. So, I agree. All right. So the last question we always have when we look at these books and, and plays and things like that is as follows, and that is, would you teach this? If I were an English, I think we need to reconsider this question. Um, but yeah, we can talk about that later. I, because it's just hard because I'm not an English teacher. So until you get to like myths and stuff, I, I'm really going to say not, not really. I think if, if I could find this place in my curriculum, yes. I think, uh, be interesting to see what young men of this day and age would think about this particular thing, especially the ending. And I guess it would be paired well with my least favorite book. Uh, I was about to say Atonement. Um, Awakening by Kate Chopin. So uh, maybe. And then the, I, you know, what my main question is, you know, do I recommend it? I would, mm-hmm. and I think, yeah, I think so. I think, You've got a. I mean, we basically spoiled it. I disagree with the the format of it at the end. I just think it's like, my gosh, once that one thing happens, it all spirals, and that's like the last tenth of the the play, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but everything happens at the end, and so it seems very quick. So I'd recommend it. I would recommend it too, um, mainly because of its place in as like this really pioneering modern play. Um, knowing, going and knowing that a lot of plays were not like this prior to this coming around, that did break ground. It did was controversial for its day, but at the same time, like, so I did teach it. I taught it. I taught sophomores for nine years. Um, I taught this play for about seven of those nine years, I believe. And, um, I stopped teaching it because I was just kind of getting tired of teaching it. Like, you know, I was like, I need a change. And so I went and taught a much happier play called Oedipus. Oh, Uh, (laughs) the happiest of plays. The happiest of plays. So I didn't teach it because I didn't see the value of it anymore. I had just been teaching it for seven straight years. And I was like, I need, I just, I just want to change things up a little bit. Right. But it, um, so I don't have it. It's not in the curricula for um, either the ninth grade or the twelfth grade classes I teach right now. So I am not teaching it. I don't know if I would come back to it as much as I enjoy this play and as important as I think it is. I think this starts to fall into that category of older literature that you can replace with something that's a little more contemporary. Um, I if there's a um, if you, I mean if you want a better there's a if you want a really good play about a marriage 
and a situation and uh, that that deals with current social issues of, of its time that are a little more resonant today. Um, I would I already mentioned Hansberry's the rain Hansberry's are racing in the sun, and um, I would I would certainly use would would use that in a classroom, and we'll get to that at some point in this show but um if there's a novel or something that deals with divorce that deals with issues like this that is in a contemporary setting that would seem more real to a teenage audience i would use that instead i don't know what that is um, if there's anybody out there who is a librarian or an English teacher who could say like, yeah, like replace the dollhouse, a doll's house with this title or something, um, please write in and tell us. But I do feel that it's starting to get to that point where um, you can put this away and find something else that's a little more modern that, uh, you know, as modern as this is, that's a little more contemporary. And that way we don't have to like make it seem like this play from the ninth from the 1880s is, you know what we're going to read. So that's, that's my thought of it. Okay. So now it's time for some feedback. Um, we get, uh, we, a number of people liked our stuff on Facebook, um, and, and Twitter and such. So thank you everybody. Uh, uh, Robert Ward, who we have a couple of things from Gene Hendricks. We have another thing from uh, professor Allen, of course, um, who is, uh, somewhere diving into a quarter bin as we speak. Um, no, he no. He's a big fat liar. He did. There are no quarter bins anymore. He sent me a comic that was way over a quarter. Give me a break. And um, M and and some other people who who have listened to the show on occasion and like the show. So we appreciate that. Um, thank you very much. We always love to hear from you guys. Now Robert had some. Robert Ward had some Facebook comments which I sort of pieced together. Um regarding uh, Sleepy Hollow. So he says, I have a confession. While while Washington Irving was clearly an amazing writer who was capable of, I think, of wonderfully descriptive prose, I didn't enjoy revisiting this classic as much as I thought I would. I found the story plot a little more meh. Truth be told, I had the time to read and watch along with another podcast and enjoyed that one a little more. They are doing The Haunting of Hill House. I had never read that book before, but rather enjoyed it, and the chance to rewatch the original film. I didn't watch or rewatch the remake, but I'm currently watching the new Netflix series. Um, and to just take a moment out there, I've heard very good things about that Netflix series. I have two episodes left, and while it's hardly an adaptation, it's shaped up to be a compelling haunted house story. Irving built an amazing basis for a story that falls apart at the end. He basically built this beautiful universe that you can feel as if you were living in, but the characters and their actions fail to fulfill the promise of an engaging story. As a reader, I love worlds and characters that leave me fantasizing about them. I love imagining what it would be like as the characters or even how I would prefer the story to develop within my own headcanon. There is little I hate more than an anti-story, a story that is too ambiguous and leaves us with too much work or for conclusion or action. For example, the lady or the tiger. I hate that story with a passion. Sleepy Hollow is the, is the latter. I don't think readers should do so much heavy lifting as described in the episode. I don't think readers should do so much heavy lifting. And as described in the episode, the detail and flowery language front loads so true the story actions is all too brief and doesn't live up to the language. 
Irving is clearly an amazing writer, and we deserve better than what he delivers. I don't see the point in spending my time reading something if the writers can, can't invest 100%, 10% of themselves. Um, he talked about how his sister liked the Burton Sleepy Hollow, so he's pretty familiar with it, but because he also read The Haunting of Hill House and the audiobook for Crimson Peak, not as expanded or good as The Shape of Water, he didn't have the chance to check out adaptations of Hollow except for the Jeff Goldblum TV movie. It's not great. It's definitely a TV movie, and it's a letdown in the theory I developed that this story works better when it's expanded. The concepts in a world I desperately want more of yet again fails. The elements of the story seem so perfect, so it's maddening that it wasn't better. I've never seen the Disney version, but we'll definitely check it out now. Um... I'm going to just really quickly, before I jump back into his Facebook comment, um, I watched the Disney version right around Halloween with Brett and Amanda. Um, very, very close to the, um, this is the cartoon from the 30s, 40s. Um, it's very close to the original text. Um, the one thing I really did notice, too, was the amount of exposition and was the amount of front-loading in the story and how the really thing that you do remember from the Sleepy Hollow is like the last two minutes. Um, but I will say something that, that that even my son and my wife pointed out as we were watching, there was the Ichabod Crane song, and I used it in um, in uh, in our episode. <laughs> Sorry. I used it in our episode. And they show Ichabod coming down the street, and you have Brom Bones... And I'm not kidding. If you put that scene up up against the scene in the beginning of Beauty and the Beast, where Belle is walking down the street reading the book and people are singing about her, and then you see Gaston, it's almost the exact same scene. I wonder if the people who made Beauty and the Beast for Disney back in the early '90s took some inspiration for that scene from the the Adventures of Mr. Toad and Ichabod, because it's really similar. And it was something that I didn't get until I actually sat down and watched it. I was like, wait a second. he Because we, we, we mentioned Gaston in the episode and it, it when we were talking about Brom Boats. And then when I'm watching that, I'm like, oh, my God, this really is that scene. So I just thought that was interesting from, from my perspective. Anyway, um, he also pointed out that Stephen Fry has a new book out called Heroes, noting that he didn't realize that a book by Stephen Fry retelling classic tales came out earlier this year, letting alone was getting a sequel. He also sent us a link to a website that has recipes for the entire menu from the Van Tassel's Feast in Sleepy Hollow. And he says that if you have an account with Audible, one of the free Christmas one of the free selections this year is Stephen Fry's Victoria's Victorian Victorian Secrets, not Victoria's Secrets. Totally different store um last year tom chose a christmas carol and briefly touched about on how bad it was for the poor while not strictly the same when i saw this i remembered that in the stories i've heard i once read a book called charlie chaplin and his times which obviously touched upon the economic situation for others throughout his life i can't remember in great perfect detail and if i had a physical copy I would look it up, but the author related to how in the Victorian era the poor huddled together and attempted to survive off moldy bread in these obscene conditions. There were pamphlets that covered these horrible conditions, although they sounded sensational, too, as they apparently painted that incest was rampant. Hearing the descriptions were very shocking and made me remember how an article about how Alan Moore about sorry. Hearing the descriptions were very shocking and made me remember an article about how Alan, about Alan Moore and how from page one he really wanted to paint a similarly bleak and horrific world. And I'm assuming 
he's talking about from hell um which is his jack the ripper a graphic novel um, watchman's pretty sad world too. yeah it's even seven and a half hours long. Uh, the the audio Scott. the audiobook he's talking about is oh, seven and a half hours long. But if you want some naughty Victorians and have Audible, check it out. I'll be downloading it tonight for sure. Naughty Victorians. Yes, and he also said, and we were talking about how uh, the the DC novels and stuff. He pointed out that there's a Killing Joke one that that was solicited, and there is also a new Harley Quinn one called Mad Love. And his comment was, because of course it would be so. But then we uh, we he followed it up with an email, and Stella, you're gonna read out Robert's email to us. Robert's no friend of mine. That's all I have to say. Here we go, dear Tom and Stella. Oh, you'll know why, Robert. You'll know why. I didn't mean to, but it appears I said everything I could about Sleepy Hollow on the Facebook post. I didn't expect such brief thoughts, but what are you gonna do? I guess I will look towards the future. Atonement. Oh boy. I can honestly say that I never wanted to watch Atonement, let alone read the novel. A few years ago, I listened to The Cement Garden, read by the wonderful Julian Ryan Tut, but never had much interest in looking at the further works of E. McEwen. As I went to read the summary for Atonement, I wasn't one over either. Now I consider Tom the safe one and Stella the wild card. Hmm. And this hasn't helped change my opinion. Tom's book choices never strike me with dread. But with Stella's, I admit I will occasionally have to take pause and wonder if this is the month that I finally take a pass on her book choice and abandon reading along. I wanted to follow along with her books because it's such a good excuse to discover new reads. You're seething as you But atonement? This. this is insane. How are yours any different than mine? You killed off a bunch of dogs. And, a moose. and I get all of this garbage? What a, what a, give me a break. This, what else did you do? You did something else that was terrible too. But anyways, this brought to mind what I think could be a great hot seat question. Tom. Your hesitation doesn't have to be as severe as mine, but which, oh my gosh, really? But which book or books, because he does give that option, chosen by Stella, and there's a typo because he said chosen, if any, has made you pause? Have you ever faced a book choice and started to wonder what in the world you have gotten yourself into? I already know what answer. Yeah, I knew it was going to be that one. If so, did a particular title surprise you in enjoyment more than another? He's going to say Rebecca. You don't have to single out at least uh, – wait, what? You don't have to single out a least favorite, but I think it would be nice to hear you have a reflection on Saul's choices for the show. That's why this is ridiculous. You're not my book buddy. You never will be. <laughs> so what uh, – yeah, so you said Rebecca. No, I'm so sorry. You said Jane Eyre. Has anything surprised you that I've chosen? Uh, Rebecca, you did mention Rebecca. I think Atonement surprised me a little bit. Um, okay. Especially not not because I didn't think I would like it, not like it. It was just because like it starts out so slowly, and um, but by the time it starts to build, it gets it, it it surprised me about how much better it got. You know what I mean? Do you not trust my choices? No. I mean, is there has do you have as much hesitancy as Robert here? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I usually pre-warn you when I say there's going to be a revenge book. I still have one on the back burner. No, there, there's nothing that you've chosen where I've gotten like it's not like you threw like Huck Finn or Ethan Throm at me, from at me or something like that. I'm like, oh, I God, did consider Ethan a couple about. times. Um, 
Yeah. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by The Little Prince. I didn't expect to not like it, but it was just like one of those books where it was like, you know, you're talking about a children's book. And I was, I was surprised. I think I was pleasantly surprised by the, um, the depth that it had. As we all were when I made a little dubstep of your Bilbao, the Bilbao Jew, the Bilbao. Yeah, I mean, the little prince, how can Robert criticize me? Now, you know what I want to do to spite him? To spite him is to mm. pick like really horrible choices and see what's like finally the last straw. Um, yeah. And I think Don Quixote. You weren't happy with that? No, I, 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 I it was, um, ultimately rewarding i felt that i started to appreciate it the more and more you and i talked about it that's good because it so was, there it is was a... a long well of course it was it was a lot and it was a lot to take in and i'm gonna <laughs> totally admit that it was like that worked it was working against the book um but when you and i got our we got our discussion going i started to really appreciate it more um, side note on the little prince i was in uh the the weekend we're recording this the week we're recording this about a week and a half ago my wife and i went on our anniversary trip we've been married for 15 years now uh so we went to quebec city um for a sort of a, a getaway for the weekend and um uh we were in the courtier de petit champlain I don't know if I'm butchering that. And I took French in high school. Um, but it's this little shopping district and restaurant district in Old Quebec, not very far from our hotel. And we were in a houseware store where like linens and plates and things like that. Kind of very much like um, there's a store in Charlottesville called the Happy Cook that is very much like. And I sent you a picture of this. They had a whole display of Little Prince themed plates and napkins and tea towels and things like that. So it was very cute. Uh, so Robert does contradict himself a little bit uh, on a little postscript here because apparently he he does mm -hmm. end up trusting me a little bit even though he spent a long time saying he doesn't trust me. So he said, I started atonement earlier this week. My trust in sticking with Stella's loose canon choices remains intact. And I'm interested to see if atonement will surprise me like Rebecca and what has to be said on the show about the bibliography of McEwen. Did we mention any other novels by Ian McEwan? Um, I mentioned on Cecil Beach in passing because I said that I I didn't. Yeah. And then, I mean, other than that, not necessarily. No. But so he's probably looking for like me talking about the cement garden, which I didn't. OK. All right. Because this was the only Ian McEwan novel that I had read. All right. Um, Gene Hendricks, he of The Hammer Strikes and Two True Freaks, uh, he got in touch with us regarding Sleepy Hollow. He said a few comments after listening to this episode. One, I am also of the opinion that the Bing Crosby narrated Disney version is the best adaptation of the story to date. Two, the comparison to Don Quixote and the idea of seeing the story from different points of view was very thought-provoking. Three, going by the Disney version, the horseman is a supernatural in nature as Ichabod looks down its throat and even gets even more frightened. Four, Stella, John Henry is the figure from the folktale. John Henry Irons is the DC superhero Steel. Practically the same. Yeah. I think I don't think I caught that until I was editing the episode and I was just like, okay. Uh, or I was listening back to it. And finally, five, Tom... Oh, here we go. Five. Finally, Tom is right. Raisins have no part in any big good. They're fine on their own, but that's it. 
What are those people called that they – I mean, I think it's usually used with royalty. So someone who, like, follows around the royalty and just, like, falls all over them and, and really tries to – you know, be a brown noser with them. What's that word called? It's a long word. It's fancy. You know what I'm talking about? The entourage? No. Retinue? Mm -mm -mm. Oh, man. No. It's someone who would be more annoying, like you look around and then. But anyway. I don't find Gene annoying, to be honest. I think Gene's a very smart man based on his <laughs> email there. So I've basically found, I wish I knew what this word was, but now I've basically found Sick that you've got a bunch. Yes, that's what it is. That's what I was looking for. So Gene and Robert are both Tom Pannery's sycophants. And, you know, the world is against me. And uh, apparently everyone's just listening to the show because of you. And apparently your brilliant book choice. This is the only time in a podcast where everybody has anybody has ever told me that I'm right it's about terrible. anything. I'm it's usually terrible. being corrected, it's so or, or being reminded of my fault, my faults. Um, so, Welcome to a woman's world. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I okay, I, I can't follow that except to ask. Yeah. Well, loose cannon. Is that me? Yeah. My loose cannon. That's terrible. Your, loose cannon. Your your rigs. And I'm Murtaugh, because you're the loose cannon, and I'm too old for this shit. So uh, what are we reading for next episode? You know, I think what makes this duo special is that, yeah, like, you're old school, and I, like, try to spice some things up. And so Robert's just going to have to deal with it. But, Robert, you know, this one's for you. This one's for you. I think you'll like it, Robert. Maybe. Now I'll think about my choices where Robert is concerned. Yes, it's called go, Station... Yes, go, go and think about your choices. <laughs> I will. It's called Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Okay. All right. Well, that's what we will be reading. Indeed. Um, Robert, you will be reading it, too. We will be reading that for next episode. And um, until then, uh, like I said, this is dropping right before the Christmas holiday um, so, and I believe by now Hanukkah will have been, uh, completed because I think Hanukkah is very early this year. It's at the beginning of December. So if you, uh, if you were celebrating When's Hanukkah, Festivus? December 23rd. When um, is Kwanzaa? December 26th. Okay, just one. Uh, as is Boxing You need day. to be as inclusive as possible. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so anyway, so, so no matter what, you, what holiday you celebrate or yes. if you're somebody who just celebrates the solstice or you are looking forward to getting just some much needed time off for a few days. Uh, we hope that, or, um, I'm, I'm sure that Stella, the loose cannon here, um, yeah. also hopes that you have a, a, very wonderful, safe, loving, and, 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 and happy, um, holiday season and a very happy new year. And we will see you in my allergies are kicking in. We will, we will see you, uh, we will see you at the beginning of 2019. So as always, uh, you can follow us on, uh, Twitter at rec reading cast, R E Q reading cast and, uh, and, uh, like us, like our page and, um, thank you for listening and then take care. And in case you're wondering what solstice is, it's one of those holidays where people worship, Salsa and uh, Dallas sycophants. Hashtag get that. <laughs> Let's all end up here celebrating the solstice. Uh, yeah, so hashtag Dallas sycophants and that's uh, get that trending, guys. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Oh, really? I'm Are so you okay? Finished.
Okay. Good night. <laughs> good night. Oh, I thought we were like done, but no, you're you're still going. Yeah. Right. Now we're done. The borders of our lives, and you reach your Emily Dickinson. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two, That's two. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode. And I only kiss your shadow I cannot feel your hand You're a stranger now unto me Lost in the dangling conversation And the superficial signs In the borders of our lives